0: Welcome to our podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Eric Johnson and Alicia Swamy, and together we are Exposing Mold.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today.
0: Today, we are here with one of my favorite herbalists, Chris Valesky. Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Chris, do you remember a few years ago when I posted that mold video, finding the mold in my moldy apartment?
2: Yes, vaguely.
0: So you commented on that video and you said, Keely, this is why you're sick. Because I had been discussing my health symptoms in 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 our private Chinese medicine groups. And you actually helped me get my hands on a formula that had helped me. And I was so surprised because when I found the mold, my first thought was, is this what's making me sick? And my next thought was, don't be paranoid because I had never learned that. So you were actually, you were actually the leading voice in helping me connect my health at the time to mold injury. And we ended up leaving that apartment 30 days later. I don't know if I've ever told you that face to face.
2: I've, I've heard bits and pieces. I honestly don't remember commenting, you know, sometimes you just get on and you do a bunch of things and you're off. So I'm glad it helped.
0: No, I mean, that was pivotal for my health. So thank you. And I'm, I'm fascinated to hear from you because I went to school for acupuncture and Chinese medicine too. And I was never taught anything about mold in my health. So walk Mm -hmm. through how you knew that it could be causing my health symptoms enough for you to, to comment that.
2: It's, 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 quite honestly, very, very similar to how we might with any frame, any type of framework, right? So, I mean, in Chinese medicine, we learned about this concept of dealing with, you know, quote, damp environments. And, you know, if you read these, these ancient Chinese medicine texts, they weren't specifically saying mold, but they were talking about environments where certain pathogens would proliferate and get inside the body. So the language was a bit different, but, you know, it was very commonly known that, you know, you don't hang around in, in damp areas and damp basements, you know, or you're going to get sick. And if you start to look at tradition in, in these very hot, damp areas of China, they've got tradition built into protecting themselves from this. I mean, from what they eat to how they behave with their lifestyle. I mean, I, you know, going into Chengdu, China a few years back, it's an incredibly hot and damp place and you you almost can't get away from mold. And Basically, they, you know, you get, get an Airbnb and they have, you know, slippers there for you, basically saying, don't ever walk barefoot and use the hot tea kettle to boil water and, and cover the, uh, you know, douse the toilet and the uh, shower and don't ever go barefoot in the shower. I mean, you see this kind of thing everywhere. I'm, almost every food that you eat has got herbs in it that are antifungal and that keep you sweating, that keep you urinating, and keeping fluid circulating throughout the body. So it wasn't always described as mold in Chinese medicine but the same concept was there all along
0: can you walk me through a little bit of the difference between diagnostic methods in Chinese medicine i want to preface this question by saying in western medicine people are really attached to having a test dictate what their health symptoms are and in Chinese medicine we we don't do that at all can you talk a little bit about what diagnostic methods we use from Chinese medicine and also how you can use those methods to pick an herbal formula that can still be effective without a test.
2: Sure. Really in Chinese medicine, there's uh, several pillars of diagnosis that are heavily relied upon. Of, of course, questioning, finding out uh, what the patient is dealing with, maybe what the history looks like, what their presenting symptoms are. That's a big part of it. Palpation. Is another big part of it. And that might mean you know touching certain areas of the abdomen, checking for temperature or variances within the body. You know, for example, sometimes somebody might come in and one cheek is hot, one cheek is cold, or they might have one of their limbs is hotter than the other, depending on what's going on. So that's a big part of it. Pulse diagnosis. There's a huge history of that in Chinese medicine dating back thousands of years. Text describing this kind of thing. is something that I specialized in sort of early on in my career, is how to how to see. Sort of take a, a look inside the body just from feeling the radial pulse. Then uh, observation of the tongue or just observing the complexion of the face is another big one. You know, looking at the tongue at whether it's swollen, whether it's, you know, soft, the color of it, the coating on it gives another peer inside the body. So these different diagnostic methods kind of are all played together to, to get a picture of what's going on inside the body and really a snapshot of what's going on right at that moment. And that's kind of an important piece when you look at how. Chinese medicine is appropriately applied. I know a lot of people will come in and they've got, you know, tests and, you know, lab values, this or that, or they'll come and say like, you know, every test I've taken is negative. Nobody can figure out what's going on. So you get both extremes with it. Not only that, but then they'll come in and say, okay, you know, I've got this test. This one was from, you know, three years ago saying this, well, from a Chinese medicine standpoint, we're really looking at what is happening with the body right now. How is the body behaving itself right at this moment? When I observed a teacher of mine in Chengdu, I noticed that he never had a chart for anybody. They would come in, he would ask them questions. They would say what's going on. He would check their pulse and their tongue and uh, he'd write something. I said, well, what about the last thing you wrote them? He says, it doesn't matter. This is what's going on with this person right now. This is what's happening with their body right now. It wasn't about, here's what happened three weeks ago. Here's what happened last time, here's the herbs that I gave him last time. It's okay. I've already treated them. Now their body is presenting like this changes have happened. Now we have to treat them by where their body is at right now. So it, it does become quite a bit different in that way. Early on in my career, I got really concerned about lab values. I did a lot of study on that. I tried to match herbs and treatment to lab values. And I failed miserably many, many times, if I'm being perfectly honest and really seeing a good mentor of mine, practicing this way, really without any of that, without any regard to any of these modern methods, I thought was very, very eye-opening for me. Because I mean, we're talking about a guy who's sitting there treating 150 patients in a day in an eight-hour day. And that sounds completely absurd when you, when you try to think about intellectually, but this, he's got people driving in from six and eight hours away just because he's got this reputation for getting people better. And it's not because he was living in a city of 12 million people. I walked out and I saw other herbalists that were bored and sitting on their phones or who had maybe one or two people in their office. And this guy's got a line out the door. And if you are not there immediately, when your name is called, you lose your spot and you got to wait another day or so just to get in uh, very, very different application of, of a medicine in that way. But the, the real key point there is I, you know, like a rude American, I asked him lots and lots of questions. I interrupted the process many times. I said, what about their lab values? What about this? Don't you care what the name of the skin condition is? He says, no, I don't care about any of that because we already have a framework, a method of diagnosing what's happening with the body right now that works extraordinarily well and should not be um, adulterated in any way.
0: Thank you for explaining that. Recently, we were speaking and you were explaining that Shao Chai Hutong was the most prescribed herbal product in the world. Can you talk a little bit about what that formula does, some situations that you would use it and maybe some situations where it would be contraindicated just to give people an idea of how herbal formulas are used. And if they're used for one thing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a one size fits all protocol.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's Shao Chai who is, it's a very, very old formula and it, it is probably one of the most prescribed medicinals on the planet. And I mean, ahead of many most of the drugs out there as well i think you know in japan alone they average something like 15 to 20 million prescriptions of it something like that per year i mean and that's that's one country the reason for that it's a very very balanced formula first of all so for most people it's fairly safe you can use it for a very broad range of of issues but the the architecture of the formula really fits very well with a modern patient base so if we look at it from a biomedical standpoint it has effects on the central nervous system to help calming, calm uh, stress and anxiety. It's got effects to help break down uh, biofilm formation in the body, which you know we know is a huge issue. With you know any any time you've gotten any kind of pathogen in the body and it hasn't been resolved appropriately, you know, a very common example of this is people get a cold, and either they take time off, maybe they take antibiotics, maybe it's a little sinus infection type thing, and they think they're better, but they still have all this mucus, and this mucus or you know these bi- will have uh, will basically create biofilms. And they'll store these pathogens in their sinuses or wherever, and they'll just come back out later on. So Xiao Chai, who is one formula that's used to help um, break down these biofilms, plus it's, it's, it's balanced in the way that it, it's antimicrobial, yeah, very broadly, antimicrobials, antibacterial, antiviral, um, antifungal, plus it supports, supports a host immunity at the same time. So you've, you've got this formula that's essentially attacking the one of the primary causes of chronic illness, right? We've got biofilms, so it's helping break down biofilms. It's helping to eliminate the the pathogen there. Plus, it's also helping the body to fight itself. Additionally, it works very well on the uh, digestive system. It tends to promote peristalsis. Tends to have harmonizing effects on the on gastric production in the in the gut. Really, there's there's books written on this. This particular formula, so I could go on all day. I mean, there's research on nephritis, chronic kidney disease, chronic uh, liver disease. I mean, just a whole bunch of things. I mean, I use it from anything from you know fibromyalgia, autoimmune diseases, you know, chronic post nasal drip. I I use it extremely broadly, and you know, as you pointed out, it's it's an incredibly safe formula. There are certain instances where you have to be very, very careful with it. You know, especially um, in terms of urban drug interaction, which is an important thing to be mindful of. But you know, for the reason that it's so well studied and, and uh, so well uh, researched. I mean, over you know centuries, it's it's used probably more than just about any herb herbal formula in in most herbalist uh, pharmacy.
0: Thank you for explaining that formula, Chris. Sure. One last question before I turn it over to see if Alicia and Eric have any questions for you. Is there any formula that you can think of that you would use to prevent a peanut allergy or some type of anaphylactic reaction?
2: Not within my experience. I mean, usually if I'm hearing about an anaphylactic reaction, it's a 911 call. It's not something I, I will play with. I haven't heard anything or learned of anything that would directly address that kind of thing. So it's it's not even something that I would take on with, with the knowledge that I have personally. Thank you.
0: I figured Earth. if anyone would have, would have insight into that, you would be one of the top go-to people to find out. So I've been trying to dig down to the bottom of that question in different herbal groups to see if anyone hasn't alternative answer because I wouldn't expect one, but I'm looking.
2: No, it's, it definitely falls under one of those instances where, okay, I I have great respect for modern medicine in that way. You know, I mean, if somebody's having a reaction like that, no, I'm, I'm going to defer to that because, you know, it is about patient safety and of course, efficacy. There's a lot of things that they treat well, but then there's a lot of things that we treat very well as well. So I'm, I'm kind of in favor of an approach where we respect the strengths of uh, each discipline.
0: I'm a big fan of that too. I think one of the best things that we could do to serve herbal medicine is to make it clear when acupuncture and herbal medicine would be a primary choice over mainstream medicine and really, and really prioritizing when each is best used.
2: Absolutely. You know, and I think you, you, you will see this a lot, especially in areas where it's integrated quite well. I know this, I I mentioned this mentor of mine, his name is Jin Zhao. He's in uh, Chengdu, China. And I saw him refer out, you know, numerous times, you know, and especially even to just say like, you know, this guy's a great herbalist. He doesn't have anything to do with acupuncture. And many times he's telling his patients, why don't you just go do acupuncture? It's going to work so much better for this. I mean, literally telling them, I probably can't do a very good job treating this, go do this. And, you know, half the time they just say, you know, I don't want to have that done, you know? Some people from Tibet really didn't care for it. So they'd say, can you just give me herbs, please? Like, okay, fine. But I think this would be better. And and on the flip side of that, you know, observing acupuncturists in the hospital there, you know, people will come in and say, you know, I've got this problem. They say, okay, well, you need an MRI first. So they go send them. And the the amazing thing is about 30, 40 minutes later, they come back with their MRI report. I mean, it's, it's rapid. And then they'll say, okay, looking at this, this probably isn't going to help you. So you're actually seeing them very realistically say like, okay, here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. And we, I saw that quite a bit you know, when I was studying in China. So it was uh, fascinating.
0: Very interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Eric and Alicia, do either of you have any questions
3: for Chris? Yeah, I've got one. You, you already touched on it by asking about you know, cold and damp and what exists in the Chinese literature about mold illness, as it may have been described in the past mm-hmm. in the 1980s. The sick building syndrome emerged in a really big way, and Western literature had nothing on it, no description, nothing that described people crawling out of their houses saying, this place is killing me. And there was no record of buildings being burned down, being abandoned, of people having to completely get rid of all their possessions, nothing like that. Is there anything at all like that in the old Chinese literature?
2: Actually, I'm really glad that you asked that, Eric, because I think I've listened to other podcasts where you've brought this up. Interestingly enough, so this is going to sound a little bizarre, but there is a history of treating what they called, you know, like demonic possession in Chinese medicine or people that were possessed by ghosts. And it sounds very floofy, very odd. But if we look at this tradition of how these kinds of things were treated, Right, you know what? What kind of herbs were they using to supposedly treat this, this ghost infestation? Right, which by the way seemed to occur in old houses and libraries. Odd, right? Places where mold probably would pl- proliferate, anyways, right? So we actually take a look at some of these herbs, and you know we've got the benefit of uh, modern pharmacology, herbal pharmacology, to look at this. And if we actually observe what these herbs were doing, the the most popular which is called uh, Songju Attractolotes, highly antifungal. And it was supposed to, you know, rid the body of ghosts. Like, I really don't think so. I think it was addressing the fact that they're getting mold and whatever pathogens in their body. And it was helping their body to, to deal with this issue. Now, the recommendation also at that time was get out of the damp environment. Because if you continue staying in this damp environment, you're going to continue being sick. Now, you know, obviously, when you live in a place like you know, Sichuan province where it's already hot and damp, part of your lifestyle is literally combating that. You sweat on a regular basis. You cook all your food with certain herbs. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting experience being there because you get into a cab, nobody is ever going to have their air conditioning on. You're never going to find it. They might roll the windows down, but they're not going to have the air conditioning on. And then you're going to go eat hot, spicy food in 90 degree weather, but so that you're sweating, so that you're constantly moving fluids throughout the body. So it doesn't allow these pathogens, a, an environment where they can proliferate appropriately. So I, I, I hope that answers your question. Well, but I mean, that's, that's probably the best reference I've found to it is this, this idea of demonic possession or, you know, places that are infested with ghosts and treating the people with these herbs that, we know, we find out thousands of years later are actually highly antifungal.
3: Yeah, you bring up the um, oddity of people keeping their windows cracked open and the, the need for good ventilation. And these concepts existed clearly in Western literature and in old writings going back actually all the way to the 1600s. Mm -hmm. And yet they never really isolated specifically what agent was involved and what they could do about it. And I looked for a transition period of when observations of something more specific that they needed to worry about may have emerged. And something really interesting came up called Korean fan death, where people in Korea had this abnormal fear of like a superstitious demonic fear of being exposed to fans that if you keep a fan running in your apartment, you could die. And for this reason, they avoid turning on air conditioning systems in in the car. They don't like to turn on the air conditioning unless they absolutely have to. Some subliminal fear of what a fan might be doing. And this is among academics, people who are not superstitious. So there's been some questions raised about how highly educated intellectual people could have such a superstitious fear. And there's a possibility that maybe their observation has some basis in fact, and it needs to be explored.
2: I, that's an extremely good point. You know, I, I I think, first of all, you know, to back in school where they talked about this concept, you know, don't sit there in air conditioning, you know, don't have a fan blowing on you. And as a student, you're like, okay, they're teaching us this, but what does that really mean? And then, you know, I went to a, a traditional medicine hospital in Tibet where one of the therapies they do, I mean, they, they look at, at your urine they you look at all kinds of different things. But, but one of the big things that they do is they put you in these big wooden bathtubs, you know, filled with hot water and they put all these herbs in there and they have you sipping tea and they'll, you'll sit in there for a good hour, just sweating bullets. And then, you know, you can get out, you can uh, kind of dry yourself off, but then they tell you, you know, put a hood up, keep yourself uh, bundled up. Don't go out in the wind because you'll get sick. Now let's actually take a look at what's happening. And especially in, modern day where we're constantly wiping away the microbiome that we have on our skin, right? We're taking hot showers every day. So we're getting rid of oils. We're getting rid of bacteria that are actually helping to protect us. Plus being in this heat, our pores are now opened up, right? So we've gotten rid of a lot of our, our natural defenses. Our pores are open. And then you go out in the wind and and people say, you know, Oh, go out, out with wet hair. You'll get sick. Sounds like an old wives tale. However, we do know that the wind Does carry pathogens. It carries all kinds of things, and if we've wiped away a lot of our defense, we've given these things a much easier entry into the body, not just via the nose and the mouth, you know, the respiratory system, but we've given them another easy passage, which is potentially why, you know, this idea of fans was such a big issue, or this idea of being in the wind was such a big issue.
3: Yeah, I uh, recently posted about a strange encounter between Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, the founding fathers. Who managed to wind up together in what Ben Franklin suspected to be a sick building. And John Adams had the uh, prevailing view that they should close off the window to keep out the cold air and keep out the wind, that something about the outside air was deadly. And he was so fearful that he wanted to shut himself up very tightly in this room. And Benjamin Franklin said, Well, no, no, you must keep the window open. The cold air is good. And I I suspect that you have not heard my theory of colds, in which he said, that he believed everybody was completely wrong about the idea of cold being the agent of itself. But there was something about cold that unleashed, there was something associated with cold and damp, but it wasn't cold and damp per se. And he insisted that they keep the uh, window open. And Benjamin Franklin is even famous for doing cold air baths. In the dead of winter, he would open up the windows and sit around naked to make sure that he got his daily dose of cold. And people thought he was absolutely crazy, but I managed to subscribe to that same bizarre theory that cold air never really did anything to anybody, and yet something is associated with that. And is there a possibility that over and above the cold air itself, the cold and damp, that when this circumstance occurs, that fans and ventilation, ductwork, something brings out this effect in such a way that people can sense it. And that's what we need to focus on, and that's why these superstitious beliefs about heating and ventilation systems and avoiding a fan and avoiding cold exists. It's because people repeatedly make this observation, and yet it's never really been isolated such that you can use this information to avoid something when it at the point of impact when it's really affecting you the most.
2: It's, it's a very fascinating idea, you know, and of course then we can start to consider what. Um these conditions will be right for certain types of pathogens. You know, cold versus hot, damp versus dry, type conditions, and which types of you know bacteria, pathogens, whatever, what type of environment they they thrive in. This this idea of damp, of course, was huge in uh, in places like Chengdu because that's where their what their environment is. So it's well known that you know you got to be very careful of the damp. Don't go, you know, staying in damp areas. Don't go sitting in a damp basement because you know, they said that damp will get inside the body and obstruct, you know, your ability to the the fluids of the body so that they won't, they won't move properly. It's a big concept that I talk about with a lot, you know, a lot of patients in general, especially if I know that they've been exposed to mold, I'll ask them basic questions. Like, do you sweat? You know, how often do you urinate? Do you have any urinary problems just to see, okay, is, is fluid being metabolized appropriately by the body? Are they swelling? Are you know many people will come in they they simply don't sweat. I even get some CrossFitters that will come and say, yeah, I'll, I'll CrossFit, I'll turn red, but I just won't sweat. And that's important because I mean the the sheer act of sweating is highly effective at helping us combat pathogens. We release peptides, we release lactoferrin, things that help us combat pathogens and biofilm formation just from a natural act like sweating. And then we start to see the validity of you know these these practices like you know saunas and whatnot and why. The importance of that kind of thing is is so apparent.
3: Yeah, that was reported by Sir Richard Manningham in 1750, where he reported on something he called the fibricula, the little fever, where people in in Britain were getting this horrible, undulant, relapsing fever. And of the people who survived, it left them with an inability to sweat and a, a horrible aversion to change in the weather. The slightest change in the weather would make them violently ill, and it seemed pretty clear that this was a problem of the detoxification system. That some fearful agent had made them so sick that even the release of this toxin was was so abhorrent that to let it out to get it on their skin would cause a reaction which prevented further perspiration. So the goal, of course, was to uh, try to get this horrible thing out. And increase pers- perspiration, in, in any way you possibly could, you know, exercise. And uh, they didn't have saunas, but this this clearly was an observation that you could reach a point at which your own sweat could become toxic to you, and at that point, you're no longer detoxing. You're shutting down your your ability to get well.
2: It brings up a very good point too, because I, especially in cases like this, and when I see that there are manifestations on the skin specifically. We can't necessarily instantly induce in sweating. We have to start getting other pathways involved prior to to even doing that. Or even with, uh, you know, common skin conditions, like, you know, eczema is a big one where you sometimes will actually promote this release via the exterior of the body release via the skin. And at times I have to literally tell people, look, this is going to get a little worse right now. It's just going to, because this is part of the the mechanism we have to use in order to, to, to get rid of this condition for you, you know, and usually i try to do that in such a way that it's not it's not very caustic to the person or it's not very bothersome and usually that means somewhere down the road in the treatment process where we've already started to uh, to address the condition but in some cases like as you as you've pointed out i've got somebody at the clinic now that um, deals with such a nasty issue with sweating that anytime they sweat they, their their skin breaks out in this uh, awful rash they get headaches they get infections from it so they've haven't been able to exercise for several years so we've had to sort of Work with these different pathways so that they can just do a normal activity like going out for a jog.
3: Yeah, let me tell you what brought my attention to this. As you know, I'm, the fa- I'm a survivor of an extremely famous incident, the original Lake Tahoe outbreak. And during this outbreak, which happened on the north of Lake Tahoe in 1985, people got this strange flu like illness and just couldn't recover. And when theorists, when doctors, researchers from all over converged on this, any clue that they didn't like that interfered with their own theory, they simply ignored. Well, one of the things that happened to us is that people became reactive to their own sweat. I mean, so reactive that if people were to sweat and exude this into their, their clothes, they would then become reactive to their clothing. And I thought, that's amazing, but it's clearly a sign that we're getting rid of something really nasty. I mean, if it's so bad that it comes out in, in our sweat and we react to our sweat, We've got to isolate whatever this is so we can study it and avoid it because I sure don't want to have this happen again. And all through my town, every detoxification regimen known to men was tried. I mean, if somebody could invent it, it was tried. The grapefruit diet, binder, activated charcoal, bentonite, anything and everything. And people just weren't making progress. And this complaint just kept going on and on. People kept talking about the same thing. I'm reactive to this building. I'm reactive to my clothing. I'm reacting to my sweat. And a couple of us decided, well, maybe there's something bad in town here. And we have a desert handy. It's not far away, just an hour's drive away. So we drove out to the desert and camped. And miraculously, we could go into a detoxification mode and sweat. And we could, we could tell. But clearly, we were releasing something very toxic. And we were getting rid of it out in the desert in a way that we could not do back in town and when we would go back to town we'd have a little bit more tolerance for whatever it was back in town i realized whatever it is out in the desert whatever's happening i need a lot more of that so i spent all my time every weekend i was driving out to the desert if i could camp out there i was getting out there at every opportunity and even when i was in town if i could spend an hour a day getting up into the woods even that would help quite a bit. So it seems to me fairly obvious that this impediment and perspiration represent a a threshold at which the body decides no more. I I can't just tolerate. I can't stand any more of this. This toxin is now going to be stored. It will be released only under duress, under the most horrible conditions because the body is going over tolerance. So in town, in proximity to this agent, whatever it is, it continues to store. And only if you get completely clear, does the body feel safe enough to really detoxify and recover in a significant way.
2: It starts to sound very similar to uh, addressing certain food-related allergies as well. And, and you know, you mentioned these, these uh, sensitivities to changes in weather and temperature and whatnot. That would also be a, a big part of it. I know th- Keely, you mentioned Shao uh, Chaihu as an example formula of this, and one of the symptoms that is listed under this is basically problems with temperature regulation. People can't get stay hot or cold; they they never have an even temperature, so they're constantly fluctuating back and forth. Sometimes people will mistake this as uh, hot flashes, especially you know if they're you know later forties, early fifties, they're female. They'll start to think, "Oh, it's just hot flashes," and in many cases, it's not. It, it doesn't even seem to have as much of a hormonal component at all. Is it, and as soon as we start treating this, this idea of these uh, retained pathogens, biofilms and whatnot, they'll come back in and say, wow, like I'm just even keel. I'm not getting hot. I'm not getting cold constantly. And you'll see this, you know, in, in different populations, we don't see it as much in the United States unless it's, it's very, very extreme, but very often, <coughs> you know, patients in China would come in and say like, oh, I'm averse to wind. I, I can't stand the wind. They, they would literally say this. I'm, I've, I have aversion to wind. And these are literal, the literal words of these ancient texts is this patient will have aversion to wind or aversion to cold or aversion to, to heat. It's not generally something that we we hear people coming in with every once in a while. I did have a gentleman a few years back that this was, was his issue. Anytime the weather got even slightly cold, his whole body would would clam up. He'd go into shivers that would last for like 48 hours, even you know getting in under a warm blanket. And of course, you know, all the lab values, every test he's done is negative. And he's run this gauntlet. And I, I looked at him and I said, you got to be kidding me. This is, this is like verbatim from the text. So we started treating him. I think it took us about a month and a half or so and completely got rid of this problem. So he's out, you know, watching football games and whatnot again. But again, sounds like a very bar- bizarre thing. The tests, you know, as you put Keely, didn't do anything there. So to, I mean, I, I couldn't, my, myself, I couldn't name any kind of like modern pathogen. I can only, I can only state this from, from the framework that we have, we use with Chinese medicine, what was going on with him. And then from there treatment was very, very simple. I think he stayed on the same thing almost the entire time. So my job was okay. Prescribe something one time and I didn't really have to change it for the entire time he was there.
1: Listen, a large number of audience members have been reaching out after hearing my tragic COVID story of losing my family member because the hospital treating her refused to provide her the medication she needed to fight the virus. I appreciate all of the love and support. And my biggest piece of advice, advice that I've been providing over and over again is to begin multi-drug treatment day one of COVID symptoms. At MyGoToDoc.com, you can obtain help from Dr. Saeed Hader, who has treated over 40,000 COVID and COVID long-haul patients with zero deaths. Yes, you heard me, zero deaths. That's an impressive track record for sure. Once you sign up to become a patient at MyGoToDoc.com, you can send free messages to Dr. Hader's care team forever and obtain prescription medications from the most affordable pharmacies in the country that ship right to your door. And you don't have to deal with price gouging or corporate pharmacies that stop you from receiving the life-saving medications you need. Now, although we're helping, fingers crossed, that Omicron means the end of the pandemic, many researchers are predicting another wave in a few months. That means high-risk patients need preventative treatment or at least meds on hand so they can start treatment fast. Low-risk patients often benefit from off-label meds because they can prevent long covid a recent article in Fortune Magazine states that one of the pandemic's biggest mysteries, the symptoms of long COVID, may be playing a huge part in the millions of missing workers. Over 100 million Americans report having lingering effects of the virus. Now, thankfully, after learning all that I know and going through all that I went through, I signed myself and my family up for mygotodoc.com and stocked our medicine cabinet's with all of the life-saving medications I wish I had for my deceased loved one, please learn from my mistakes and prepare yourself today. MyGoToDoc.com is your go-to resource for COVID-19.
3: Well, this problem with temperature regulation was classic for the Lake Tahoe mystery illness. I mean, we had to stay at between 78 and 80 degrees. And if people went outside, if they got hit with any cold at all, you'd get like a, a pseudo Renaud's syndrome. I mean, uh, extremities would turn blue mm-hmm. and specific fingers. I mean, it was so close to being Renaud's that a lot of people were diagnosed with Renaud's, but it wasn't quite right. And this went on with me until I started my desert detox protocol. And amazingly enough, for about a year, I, I continued on, even though I was spending as much time as possible trying to detox. I still had this, this problem going on. And then one day I woke up in the morning and I was warm. It was incredible. I just woke up and for the first time in, in like years, I didn't feel cold. I felt normal. And I ran outside and it had just snowed and I start making snowballs and I'm going, whoa, no renaughts. It's gone. It just melted away like overnight, like my body hit some, some threshold. Which it finally clicked back into normal and thermoregulation re- was was as it should be, and I was so excited about this that I ran down the street to Dr. Peterson's office, who was the at that time the most prominent chronic fatigue syndrome physician probably in the world. People coming from all over the, the United States to you know listen to his, his wisdom, and I start making snowballs and I'm throwing it at his windows, hoping that he'll come out and yell <laughs> at me, so I could tell him. Hey, the mold avoidance worked, really. I'm serious. Look at this snowballs. But he never did. I did let her go in and make sure to tell him about it. And I said, this mold avoidance is like a miracle. Whatever it is, this the way this biotoxin, this these substances from mold and algal bloom, because there was an algae bloom at the time, something about this threw us over tolerance and by reaching this level of detoxification, my Symptoms have improved so much that I can no longer be diagnosed as a classic case of chronic fatigue syndrome. So it yes, sounds man. like what you're describing me with the people who have an aversion to wind and aversion to cold, the thermoregulation, all that. It sounds exactly like what I'm describing, just at a less focused form that enabled them to make observations about specifically what it was so they could avoid it and really do something.
2: You know. I- First, I'd like to cross-reference the uh, the police calls from that day on how many people reported a crazy man running around throwing snowballs at windows. <laughs> but I, I think you highlight the point very very well, Eric. That you know I mentioned at the beginning of this that within a Chinese medicine framework, we're, we're really treating the body where it's at at that particular moment. So you know, you may have lab values or whatever from you know months or years ago that are, are not at all pertinent. And what we're really looking at is. How well is the body working? How well are these detox pathways working? And that's really the symptoms that we're looking at. I mean, are are we peeing and pooping appropriately? You know, how's our temperature regulation? Do we have normal thirst? That's, that's a big one. And, and people just don't recognize that in, in modern day, whether they even have normal thirst. They either drink way too much water or... They just don't realize that they're never thirsty and it just doesn't, just doesn't come to mind at all. But again, like you said, you, you gave your body the freedom for these pathways to turn back on so that it felt safe and it did its job. So we're we're really looking at, again, these natural, these natural processes and facilitating them. Well, I was somehow extremely
3: fortunate to have been in the army and had a background in biological warfare protocols, at which point we were trained to look for alterations in the environment where low-level contaminants would be present and treat emerging illnesses, bizarre rashes, a cold acting worse than it should, anything that was within a normal framework acting abnormally as a possible environmental alteration. And when doctors examined the Lethal mystery illness, they were looking within the body, within the human, within the various pathways, the, the metabolic uh, disturbances they could find. And they did this to the exclusion of looking at the environment. So there was like a cutoff point, in which they spent so much time looking at what they could do to help the patient get well, that they weren't really interested in how, wow, all these people they got sick in the same building. Maybe rather than look inside the the patient, we had to look inside the building. So I I applied that concept that there was an environmental factor that was overwhelming and I managed to hone in on the sick buildings. But then we ran into the roadblock that multiple sick buildings had emerged at the same time. And when I reported this to Dr. Peterson and Dr. Cheney, the two researchers who essentially Started chronic fatigue syndrome by calling the CDC for help. Their objection was, well, all those buildings could not have gotten worse at the same time. So that theory, no, it's got to be something in the body, some, something inside the person instead. Like they go, well, let's do a thought experiment. What if they did get worse? What would that look like? What you would see is otherwise healthy people coming into this environment, people with no track record of any illness whatsoever. And suddenly becoming ill. And if we see that, even though the buildings might be widely spread, this would be a sign that this is an environmental alteration, one that transcends the idea of looking inside the body, and you have to switch over at that point and look whatever happened to the environment. And I believe that the algal bloom, the harmful algal bloom, the cyanobacteria, was that overarching effect that for a time... my geographic area, North Tahoe was subject to an amplification of biotoxins. And that shifted the the target over from the patient to looking into the environment. And some of us who went to the desert stumbled into this fact. Yeah, there was something that crossed the line where we have to switch over and find out exactly what it is that, that we can address in the environment. And a lot of that comes down to specific molds. And if we can isolate these molds, find out what toxins they're producing, locate these colonies and remove them, people can recover sometimes even in the same building simply by removing this additional load on their immune system.
2: Just wasn't a prevailing concept at the time. So nobody's, nobody was tuned to it, or at least the doctors weren't tuned to that that type of idea.
3: But that's uh, fascinating about the um, aversion to wind. Now, cold, you can kind of go, well, you know, maybe somebody had a loss of thermoregulation, so they're just going to be, you know, having problems with any kind of cold, even though there's really nothing inherent about cold that we know of as being particularly pathogenic. But when, how could air moving sideways possibly, possibly be a problem? That seems crazy. But when you look at Korean fan death, this insane belief that a fan might actually be doing something, to me, this suggests that putting air through a venturi the sudden acceleration of air might be altering something in the air in such a way that something that wasn't particularly bioavailable or pathogenic prior to entering that venturi suddenly is bioavailable. It's kind of a crazy clue, but I did a lot of proximity testing with fans to find out if I could discern the difference. So I would take a fan or a vacuum cleaner into a moldy building and find out if um, accelerating the air had an effect on me, which it did. And this effect was mostly detectable by an alteration in art, the intensity with the heart laboring. So it's kind of a bizarre clue, but that's the one that I'm uh, concentrating on because it's so fascinating. It's so bizarre. And now that I hear your description of it, it does seem to be vaguely represented in other cultures. And even in the old literature, and something that people have been sort of pointing at for a long, long time, but not really attaching it major importance to until quite recently.
2: I think you kind of caption an, an issue that I mean, we see not only in the West, but quite honestly, with uh, within the framework of Chinese medicine as well. Because I think even as you know, a Western study of Chinese medicine, some of these concepts initially were very foreign and kind of like you know that sounds a bit like superstition. And that's probably what some of these doctors had thought at that time as well. It's like, oh, that, that just that doesn't make any intellectual sense. You know, fast forward ways, and then we realize that, okay, actually this does make quite a bit of sense. But it, it's kind of interesting to, to note that and that we had this cultural context that might sound weird or off, but there might actually be some validity to it. We just haven't figured that out yet. The cold piece of it, I'm still trying to figure out parts of that as well. I, I just remember sitting and listening to, you know, these practitioners treat patients. And I remember one young gal came in, she's probably in her mid twenties. She was almost hanging her head in shame because she didn't, she didn't seem like she wanted to say what was wrong. And she said, well, I had to, of course I had this translated for me because I don't speak Mandarin, but she said, well, I was walking around on cold floors, barefoot, and now my knees hurt. And and this was just such common knowledge that you do not do that because the cold will get into your body. (laughs) So it's literally hanging your head like this. And, you know, everybody's staring at her like, are you kidding me? Everybody knows that you're not supposed to do that here. Of course, it's totally different. I mean, we, we walk around barefoot all over the place and we don't think anything of it, but so I'm still trying to wrap my head fully around how that works. I haven't gotten that far, but it's kind of interesting because, you know, from a cultural standpoint, people know, okay, you do this and it will cause this problem. You don't go out in the wind. You don't expose yourself to too much cold or too much damp or whatever it is.
3: We did an interview with a Dr. Lewis who was approaching a problem of sick buildings from this, this perspective that, well, this is kind of unbelievable and there's not much evidence for this. And he was doing an examination of sewage sludge where people were having the same symptoms as were reported in the sick building syndrome. And he had honed in on toxic mold at the time. And while he was in the course of this investigation, he and a reporter or a journalist that he was um, doing this story with were sitting down on hay bales that were in close proximity to this area where this event had occurred and realized they were getting sick from just sitting on the hay bales. Which, I mean, you could hear it in his voice. It sounds crazy, even to him. But it turns out that this toxic mold that we found in the sick buildings, the one that really stood out. Is a particular one called Stachybotrys charterum, which has quite a history. It was known for poisoning horses during World War II, and it was investigated as a biological weapon. And it's an extremely, extremely powerful toxin, and it loves to grow on cellulose, on hay, and that's why it loves sheetrock. And this thing has emerged over and over again. And here, just by coming into proximity with something that Stachybotrys likes to grow on, in the setting of a sick building syndrome type of incident, except this was outside, he was reporting on something that sounds like, as you say, unbelievable, couldn't exist. And yet here he felt it. So at that point, I believe that all we had to do to proceed with this investigation is take that bale of hay, study the living crap out of it, and maybe even move it out into the wind, stand downwind of it, see if the wind coming across that hay managed to Blow something on you where you have this type of reaction, and then the matter could be settled, actually within a matter of hours.
2: Sounds like scientific thinking at its best. <laughs> a hypothesis, a hypothesis. Now we've got an experiment. Let's try it and see what happens.
3: Yeah, I actually took a sample of saccibotris and did precisely that. I ran it through a vacuum cleaner to see if it would knock me flat, and it did. <laughs> I told this to Doctor Shoemaker and. He goes. What the hell are you doing? You're crazy.
2: Uh, taking one for the team in modern speak, right?
3: <laughs> well, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it, it it makes me think of something that that is kind of interesting, though. You know, we, the, when when we talk Chinese medicine, Chinese culture, everything is very very conceptual, and this idea of chi that people talk about, which you know is a, is a is a whole other topic. I don't believe that it's any kind of you know weird ethereal type thing, but If the idea behind it is, if something stops or stagnates, it causes disease and death. So I mean, we see you know hay bales sitting there for a time, and what do they start to collect? This toxin, right? You know, we see the same thing with any anything that will start to ferment. You know, things start to decay. You see this even in Chinese culture. Nobody stops for anything. You cross the street, you just work around everybody else. I mean, it it seems like this incredible mess, but they know that you just don't ever stop. You stop moving, you stop sweating, any of this stuff, and it will start to cause a problem. And this is why you see you know, people waiting for a bus, for example, doing things like Tai Chi or massaging their kidneys or you know doing breath exercises. They're, not, they're never sitting around. That just doesn't happen in that culture. I mean, even some of the driving tests, I mean, it's like if you stop inappropriately, you're going to get rammed into and you're going to die. I mean, this is like the prevailing thought, like, no, you don't stop. You work around other people. You know, and then if, if you stop emotionally, it's the same thing. You become depressed, you become apathetic, you become irritable, angry, rage prone. And, we, and, and the, the amazing thing is I see this much more frequently here in our culture where we do stop. We sit around, we, we, we binge Netflix and whatnot. We're not moving like we should. And uh, you look over there and you look at their phones, you know, which is watching how many steps they have. And it's like 20 to 30,000 steps a day. They haven't stopped at all. They're constantly moving, they're constantly keeping their blood flow going, they're sweating all the time. It's a completely different, uh, different idea on and lifestyle and, and, uh, and philosophy.
3: In a way, that almost sounds based or similar to what I've been, been describing as the rebreathe effect, where if you are in the presence of a toxic plume from these microbes, from this toxic mold, that if you inhale, Something about the the process of, of breathing unveils this bioavailability effect such that it is toxic to you on the second breath, not the first. in other words, you could walk into a, an area of toxic mold, like if you'd been holding your breath, you could run in there, take a really deep breath, and it would, wouldn't really affect you all that much, whereas if you breathe it out and then Instantly rebreathe that exhalation. Something about the processing of that over and above carbon dioxide, something about that inhaled air is just incredibly, incredibly toxic to you. And I tell people that when they're in a, a toxic building, keep moving, don't stay in one place. If you have to stand in one area, move your head. If you can do at least that much, it seems to help. And people have reported back to me, that it does seem to make uh, a slight effect. But in terms of the scientific thinking, this, this effect with the, the toxic mold, when this black mold first emerged, and this was reported in a 1994 Bible for the indoor air quality movement, the Saratoga Springs Manual, they wondered, what is it about this black mold that is so bad? And what do the uh, people who first encountered it first tried to enter this into the literature do, they went and inhaled some. Well, at the time, mold wasn't really known to be much more than an allergy. So they, they didn't really consider this to be extremely dangerous. Of course, they found out otherwise when it knocked them flat. Fortunately, they all recovered. But to me, that was such a, a simple and basic thing to do that I'm amazed that this process of trying to find out exactly what it is, is clearly described in the indoor air quality literature. And the reports, I mean, the, the their effects. It was it was documented, and yet somehow this gets shunted aside. And doctors fell right back into, "Do we have a test for it?" No, of course they don't have a test for it. That's why that's why these volunteers were doing that, because it was not in the literature.
2: It's fascinating. So it shows that we still have a ways to come.
3: So my advice to people, when they believe that they're subject to this strange effect that. Doctors don't understand and don't believe in, like if you react to the wind, if you get sick in certain places, if the sudden change in the weather affects you, there is actually something you can do, something you can try that doesn't occur to most doctors. That is, you can take a sample of the offending agent and do proximity experiments and see if it affects you, especially at times of of weather change. So at this point, we're still trying to get doctors to listen to us because it sounds like. Something supernatural. But I uh, believe, as you mentioned with the chi, uh, the that there really is a very specific scientific effect going on here. And that's described in Dr. Robert Becker's books, Cross Currents, where he did experiments on, on salamanders that can regrow their limbs. And this ability to regenerate was completely dictated by a DC electrical current generated in the nervous system. And he could stimulate it by microcurrents and cause quicker regeneration or by reversing the current so the polarities in the opposite direction shut off their ability to regenerate. And this primeval system still exists within the cells. It's overlaid by more sophisticated neurological impulses. But Dr. Robert Becker said that this effect is still inherent to each and every living cell, and it all has to do with direct current, with the polarity of the cell, so that you can reach a certain point where your body is so impaired, where the ability to send a proper current through the cells switches off and reverses itself. And it may be what faith healers do, the people who heal by touch, is they use their healthy current, their normal polarity, to send it to these points and stimulate the nerves like a test, like a shock to the system to see if you can get the polarity moving in the proper direction. And if somebody's on the edge of health, if they have detox to a point where they're, they're just right on the edge of being able to accomplish this on their own, what a healer does is apply this current and shock them into the, into the proper healing mode. How cool is that?
2: it actually it sounds very very similar to concepts found in elect- electroacupuncture where we use you know specific frequencies to neuromodulate areas or you might use a specific frequency on the knee for example that helps to generate cartilage or other frequencies that are used for things like labral tears that um you know will respond to a very specific frequency you'd use one in a certain like cartilaginous tissues, but you might use something different for muscular type tissue or something different for, for a nerve, or even there's frequencies that they use for helping to quote cleanse the blood of things like viruses and whatnot. It sounds very, very similar to what you're describing. It
3: does. And if we can move this from being viewed as something supernatural and you know with, without basis into a sound scientific concept, then we can get mainstream doctors to look at it.
2: Fortunately, I think we are getting there. I mean, there's some people holding on a bit still, um, but you start to see this this proof in the pudding, so to speak, by how many people are starting to use therapies like this, and because they're they've realized that okay, my doctors great, but they are limited. They've got strengths and weaknesses, like anything else. And we see, you know, especially I, there was a study some years ago. Maybe ten years ago now. Gosh, that's a long time already. Showing how fast some of these therapies are growing and just growing at this exponential rate, and probably because people are not satisfied with the level of care that they've been getting, whether it's you know mold, musculoskeletal injuries, whatever it is, they've, we've realized that okay, there is limitations to the the form of medicine that we've you know sort of put our faith in God in, and people are really searching hard for it, and, and thankfully we've got things like this that are filling a lot of these gaps.
3: Yeah, my problem is when I approach. Uh, researchers, top researchers at uh, Stanford and Harvard, various other institutions, and try to propose looking into some of this stuff. They go, Well, you have no basis in science. There's no reason to look because it's not already in our literature. And I'm going, That's the reason why you want to look because it's not in your literature. Because this effect exists and people are reporting it, and you have no explanation for it. This should get a scientist excited. To, to think, is there a logical reason for this? And if so, can we pursue it?
2: Should be, is the, is the, uh, the operative word there, <laughs> or phrase.
3: Yeah, I mean, to come down to it, uh, it, it appears that a lot of our top researchers don't understand science. Science starts with observation. If that observation is reproducible, that means something is there, even though you may not have a basis for it entered into your literature. And that
2: is exactly what
3: you want to look for, because that is where new discoveries are to be
2: made. Absolutely. Where the water is blue.
1: So my final question here before we sign off is, you know, we are entrenched in Western medicine and, you know, we have a pill for every symptom, you know, through the library. What I would want to know is what would you say to people that call herbs and herbal medicine hocus pocus?
2: I would say that they're ignorant. If I'm being perfectly honest, I mean, if, <laughs> it's kind of almost an odd thing for somebody to say at this point. It, and it, it does speak of ignorance because I mean, when you really look at the, the wealth of information there is out there, it's, it's at the point where it's incontrovertible, especially when you look at it places, you know, I mentioned uh, J- Japan and their, their use of what they would call Campo formulas. So they've got, you know, a certain body of, of, of herbal formulas that are basically endorsed. And they've got, you know, decades and decades of research showing what these do, what the efficacy is, you know, what potential for side effects are, where the reactions might be. There's one called Sichuan Dabu that they've got about 50 years of uh, scientific study on using this alongside cancer and chemotherapies. I mean, just, I mean, 50 years of research, find me a drug, you know, that has that much research, you know, not many drugs will have that, that much research on it. So, you know, I mean, I, You know, I used to get very, very huffy and and offended by things like that, but it's just plain ignorance at this point because there's, there's so much information. It's, they probably just don't know where to look or how to look for it, which is probably more the problem than anything else.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I remember Keely telling us and just telling our audience, you know, it's like herbal medicine was the original medicine for people. We treated people with barks and herbs and things that we found in nature that, you know, People had tested for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, maybe some have died from this and that. And that's why we know what to avoid and, you know, what is good and what's not. So I think people need to look more towards natural remedies when they're dealing with something like mold illness, because a lot of these drugs come packed with crazy symptoms. And it's like you use this drug to quell this symptom, but it causes a whole host of others. That's not really something that you see with herbal medicine. You know, it, it, if anything, it, it helps more than causes more issues for you, in my opinion, anyhow. So I'm not the expert here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's kind of one of the beauties beauties of it, especially something like Chinese medicine, where there have, you know, just about any given formula has got centuries of, of practice being used. So I mean, there's most of these were designed in such a way that they knew that if you gave, you know, just this one herb for you know, this condition or this symptom, you probably were going to have a problem. You know, a very, very good example of this is an herb called bupleurum, which is um, one of the most commonly used herbs out there, but used alone would probably cause most people to have headaches and or migraines and could actually cause damaging effects over the long term. Well, what was found was that when you combine it with another herb, it actually, the effectiveness of this herb bupleurum works even better. And it mitigates these side effects to the point where there's basically none. And this is essentially how these whole herbal formulas came to be. They would basically observe what happened with these, with these, with prescribing these and say, okay, obviously it's causing this problem. So we need to alter this formula a little bit so that we're not damaging the body in this way. And so you very often see these formulas that have, you know, six, eight, 10 herbs combined in pairs so that they're not only mitigating side effects, but they're also using herbal pairs to compound the effects of the formula itself. And it's interesting because there, there, there is a very real blend of tradition and science that goes along with it. I mean, I cannot get an herb in my clinic that hasn't been highly, highly tested. I mean, genetically tested to make sure it's actually the right one, because some herbs look so close that to the naked eye, we can't tell the difference. And this one might be toxic and this one might be medicinal. So, I mean, they've got, you know, organoleptic testing, you know, heavy metal testing. I mean, most of them go through 16 plus. Test just uh, alone to make sure that we're using the the right herb the, that it's not been uh, contaminated at all. There's a whole field uh, of herbal pharmacology that's been birthed from this, and it is an intensely difficult field to exist in because it's uh, you've got to be extremely bright in order to to fully understand this. I, I got to go to uh, Chengdu Medical College and give a little lecture, and then we you know showed us some of the labs where they're where they're doing some of these things, and it's it's fascinating. The amount of modern science that's been poured into it. And and as interesting as that is to me to see what we've done in that way and and the pharmacological knowledge we've gained from it, I I know more than ever that we cannot abandon the tradition, at least not at this point. They are developing tests that would match up with these, you know, quote patterns that we talk about, you know, these aversions to wind that Eric and I were talking about. At this point, they're extremely cost prohibitive and quite frankly, not necessary. You know, I mean, I can't imagine spending thousands of dollars for one test when we could have just, you know, given a, you know, 50 or $60 prescription of Shao Chai, who, like Keely mentioned, and we'll know within days how they're doing and know that, you know, the odds of harming them with it is nil.
1: Yeah. I mean, the amount, the just the sheer amount of complaints we see on Facebook groups or just other groups where we serve patients, it's just, they're just taken aback by the cost of testing alone. You know, it's like not even treatment. And I mean, Keely, I'm sure has gone through it. I've gone through it thousands of thousands of dollars of tests, you know, and I'm still sick. <laughs> and then I go to Eric and Eric's like, we'll do these few little things and see what happens. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, when you're desperate, you'll do literally anything. And, you know, Keely sends me herbs. I'm like, okay, you know, and I try all these things and my life has completely changed. I'm still alive. I'm still here. I have the energy to be enthusiastic and optimistic and start a group, you know, with Keely and Eric and and educating people with these, these simple tactics and utilizing traditional medicine like herbs. It's astounding. And, (laughs) You have to wonder sometimes with these people that, you know, claim to be experts, whether they're really trying to help, or are they really just trying to make money, you know, to push their, their tests and all these crazy protocols, that you know, per bottle, $250. So, you know. We're super honest and super transparent here at Exposing Mold. And, you know, our goal is to help people, but it's also to let people know that, hey, there's people out there that are just trying to scam because this is an opportunity for them to sell their snake oil and be careful because we're just so tired of seeing people lose every single thing their life savings, their homes, everything because they're just told to do this and do that and take this test. And, and in the end, they are sicker than ever and they have no answers. And so that's, that's where we come in. And that's where we provide information and, and partnering with people like you, Chris is important because we don't want to harm people any more than they already are. You know, we, we really want to help. And that's why, you know, exposing mold is here. And that's why we, we branch out with people like you and and really find (laughs) the doctors and researchers and physicians who are willing to put forth, you know, their effort to help us and in turn help people. So.
2: I thank you for having me on here. I mean, I think I absolutely love what you guys are doing and I'm kind of the same way. I honest to a fault almost in my clinic where people say, have you heard of this? I say, no, never. (laughs) Have you treated this? No, I have never treated that. And they'll, they'll ask me, you know, what do you think? And I'll just tell them, honestly, look, like, here's what it looks like from my paradigm. I will treat you no no more than one month if I don't see very notable change <laughs> that's going on with you. And I, I find that people are very refreshed by that, you know, where I can show that okay, you know, my knowledge is absolutely limited because I am one person with with a very specific paradigm. It works very very well for a lot of people. It does not work well for some some things. But I always let people know that. And I think I think that's a breath of fresh air in our culture. Where you know, as a, as a doctor, and maybe not so much anymore, but you know. It was often practiced that you have to be the expert on everything. You have to be the voice of, here's what you do, you know. And I think there's a lot of strength in saying I have no clue. You know, I treated a gentleman years ago. He had some end stage liver issues, did not know what to do. And I said, look, I know how to treat you in concept, but I've never treated somebody in your condition. I said, here's my idea, but I completely respect if you want to walk out the door. And he was just like, thank you so much for for saying that. And I think we 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 worked together for several months for it, but beyond that, you know, just cause I said, look, sure. I have an idea on how to treat you, but I don't know. I simply don't, you know, and I, I actually almost prefer that to, to say like, you yeah, know, here's my weaknesses <laughs> take it or leave it.
1: Thank you for your honesty. And you know, that, that's needed. We need more of that these days because too many doctors are just saying, Oh, there's something just, there's something wrong with you. Or there's something wrong with your, your head or you're mentally ill. You know, it's never like, Oh, I actually don't know. I would like to know. And, you know, maybe I could refer you to someone else who may know, and they don't do that. And that's the problem. And so thank you for being honest. And just for closing here, just how can providers or, or patients connect with you to enhance their herbal education?
2: Really through my website is probably the easiest place. It's just my name, chrisvaleski.com. Practitioners, we've got a, a continuing education site for, it's it's geared towards Chinese medicine practitioners, and um, they can find it that way as well. But that's probably the easiest way because it everything, you know, gets filtered through to me eventually. So
1: Thank you everyone for joining us today. We appreciate you, Chris, for coming on and just chatting more about your your expertise in herbal education, Chinese medicine. It's definitely, you know, a practice of medicine that is becoming more valued as people are seeing how allopathic and, you know, pharmaceutical medications are failing them and actually making them more sick. So, thank you again and Awesome to the rise in traditional medicine. We definitely need more, a lot of that these days. Please like, share, comment on our content. Also check us on all podcasting locations and platforms. Also check out our Patreon and GoFundMe pages to keep this podcast rolling. We recently launched a Exposing Mold members education group where we are providing awesome information that you will not find anywhere else for a very, very low cost per month. And we hope that you'll go ahead and check that out. I will link it below in our show notes. Thank you again, everyone. And we'll see you next time.